You're listening to the Redemption Church Podcast with Pastor Daniel Williams as we go through a series called God Redeems, a study through the book of Exodus. Let's get into the Word. You guys ready? Uh, Exodus chapter 24. Let's dive in. I will say this. I'm super pumped. This is going to be, you guys don't even know. We're about to get into a whole chapter, and I just want to tell you, you're welcome. Because you're going to thank me. You're about to go to seminary. We're going to have a little, little hardcore teaching on things about covenant, about the blood of Jesus, about just all this different stuff that is going to be deep. So I'm going to try to stick to my notes because if not, I could spend a few hours on this topic. But we're going to work through uh, Exodus 24. But as we do that, the message title is The Covenant Confirmed. Uh, the covenant confirmed between God and the nation of Israel as he brought them out, is establishing a nation, gave them ordinances, and now is promising to give them new land. He's about to confirm a covenant and then meet them in this next section of uh, Exodus, the tabernacle with his presence. Okay, These patterns and these study times are actually good for us because they help us see the pattern of how God works. And one thing I want you to understand in Exodus 24 is God is fulfilling his promise. Now, Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. We covered this, but I want you to realize this is what's taking place. God gave Moses a promise. He said, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, he says, I am the Lord, I will bring you out of Egypt under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And we know this has taken place. This is Acts, uh, Exodus 1 through 18. God freed the nation of Israel. He speaks it, and then he fulfills his word. But the heart of a covenant, he says in verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. This is all about relationship and God confirming a covenant and relationship with him. And he says, you shall know that your Lord, your God, who has brought you out of from under the burdens of Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. We trust God because he fulfills his word. He confirms things that he said he's going to do. And in this chapter is what's happening here. Now, there's many sections of Israel, or, uh, uh, the nation of Israel in this book of Exodus, but we see a key leaders like Moses. We see him, God, use Moses to free the people of uh, Israel, fulfilling this promise. And in chapters 19 through 24, you really see God establishing his people in the book of uh, Exodus as a nation. And this is where we get these Ten Commandments. We get these 42 ordinances, or the Levitical law, uh, of 613 uh, laws that he would actually give them. Last week, we looked at the Bible study in the last uh, chapter of 23, how God promised victory for them. He said, I'm, I'm going to give you that land, the promised land, land of Canaan. Like, I'm going to feel, fulfill it. He is God. He fulfills his word. He establishes his covenant right here. Now, one commentator, Tony Murda, he said this, just so we have some context of the book and where we're jumping in. When talking about covenants, remember that any covenant to be established, it has to be confirmed by both parties. This happens in chapter 24. Chapters 20 through 23 lay out the terms of the covenant, and now in chapter 24, it tells us how it was confirmed. Exodus 24 is also the story of a worship service, the first of its kind. So, before we get into the text, can we do some 
textual work and give you some definitions by helping you understand what a covenant is. Now, you may know what a covenant is because you're probably familiar with the covenant of marriage. You guys all know that? Understand that? Covenant of marriage. Let's just break it down a little bit because there's some helpful things and some not so helpful things about what we know of the covenant through our cultural moment. This is a spiritual and legal agreement between a man and a woman to become one in relationship. Usually there's words of affirmation between the partners um, and parties. There's promises made. They actually become married. They have a ceremony to make it official. There's witnesses and then usually an incredible party. Uh, There's an outward sign of marriage as well. You guys may know, a wedding ring, right? It's to let people know, hey, this has taken place. This sign points to actually what happened that day in front of witnesses. That was a celebration that something happened legally and spiritually, and it's a joyous occasion as they promise to love one another unconditionally, sacrificially. Now, you may or may not know this, but June 20th is my wedding day. June 20th, 2003, coming up on 20 years of marriage. I know you guys don't want to celebrate and smile. It's fine. It's okay. Wow. Give me a golf clap. We're talking about 20 years of love, man. Come on. You know what I'm saying? That's okay. You don't need to celebrate it because I am. In a week and a half, we're about to go for a week up to the Northeast to celebrate our love for one another because it is a monument of 20 years. Why? Because in our culture, although we know these things about marriage, we also know some negativity or things that are not supposed to happen in marriage, like divorce. And a lot of couples don't make it, do they? They don't make it sometimes 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and this can actually hinder what we think about covenant, because in our cultural moment, we think of a covenant as a contract, rather than what a biblical covenant is. And this is why God uh, intended marriage to be a lifelong partnership because it would point to the gospel. We know this in Ephesians chapter 5, that, that marriage actually points to God and these eternal things. And when we disobey God or sin or go against what he defines as good and is right or wrong, it actually brings damage to us. And this is why in Malachi and other verses, Malachi 2.16 actually says God hates divorce. He hates divorce because at the time of the day when he wrote that, he would admonish men of the day that would just divorce their wives without any biblical grounds, treating their marriage covenant like a contract. You know, you've heard it. I just fell out of love. She's not meeting my needs. He's not doing it anymore for me. And they actually have a conditional clause and say, if you don't do this, or if you don't do this, then we're going to separate. But the Bible says a covenant is actually not performance-based. Right? It's not a contract. Who has the best deal? I'm just going to pick it at the time. It's you make a contract or an agreement, and it's supposed to last. This is more than just a business agreement. It's a love affirmation. This is why usually when I officiate a wedding, some of the vows think or sound like, till death do us part in sickness and in health. Rich or poor is giving you situations of life ups and downs that even things change, the covenant will remain. We have to understand that because our context is covenant of marriage, but yet in our culture, 50% of marriages end in divorce. A covenant is different than a contract. Well, what is a covenant biblically? Let me give you a little definition from a guy named Wayne Grudem. He's written a systematic theology book. It's about 1,500 pages. Like I said, you're welcome. You don't have to read it all, okay? But I will give you a definition for him and try to help you break it down because it will help us understand the text of what we're getting into. He says this, A covenant is an unchangeable, 
divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. I'm going to say it one more time. You're going to memorize it, and there will be a quiz at the end of it. Okay? A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. Now, there are a couple of key words that he uses on here. It's, he says unchanging or unchangeable. There, a covenant may be uh, superseded or replaced by a different covenant, but it may never be uh, it may never change once it's established. Once God makes a covenant, it is always there. And he says this word agreement. In order to show that there are two parties. When God makes a covenant, he makes a covenant between two people, God and man. And they must enter into a relationship, a provision that he makes. You see, it's between God and man, but it's a divinely imposed. Meaning that man cannot negotiate with God or change the terms of the covenant, only can accept them or reject them. Okay, This is heady, this is stuff, but it's an unchangeable, divinely imposed agreement of our relationship with God. It's based off of her, his term and his agreement. It's based off of God because we are not equal with God. Hopefully you know that by now. You are not God. He is greater. He gives us a term and we could either agree or disagree. It's almost like a will or testament. And this is where we get the word New Testament and Old Testament from our Bibles. It's sort of like when someone dies, they have a will or testament, and they say, this is my inheritance. You can receive it or you could not, but this is the terms and the conditions. This is what's happening here. And we take God's covenant, and we either receive them or we reject them. And these Big portions of the Bible, 39 books in the Old Testament, our Old Covenant, and 20, uh, 27 in the New, 66 total. I hope my math did that right. Um, but these covenants and this Old Covenant or the Covenant of Moses is being established in Exodus right here. This is why this is huge. This is why I'm giving you a little bit more heady stuff because it actually affects the entire Old Testament. When we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about the Old Covenant. We're talking about Exodus 24, okay? This is the Old Covenant. When Jesus comes, he's going to give us a new covenant that will be greater than the Old Covenant. This covenant will be established in this chapter to show us that we have to have a relationship with God, not based off our own efforts, but based on his efforts. Remember the law. It shows us we need a Savior. So this Old Testament is a case study showing us the need for Christ and given us and given the nation of Israel to restraint sin because we are sinners. That's why we have the moral law, to show us and reveal to us. Now, New Testament. Let's bring this in. Galatians. It's a book about the law, about testaments, about covenants, and all this different stuff. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 Paul addresses this and says, what purpose then does the law serve? We've hit on this over and over and over again, but you need to understand. He says it was added because of transgressions or because of sin. Tell the seed, remember that seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, of the Messiah, the Savior, should come to whom the promise was made. And isn't it a good thing that we trust God's promise because he fulfills it and he fulfilled it in the Messiah in Jesus the law was given and this covenant was established to show us that we actually need faith 
and not works. And Paul reminds us of this in this chapter and says, actually, there was a covenant before this. It was a covenant of faith. And Abraham was justified or righteous by faith. 430 years later, this covenant God made with Abraham to bring a Messiah. So this old covenant points us to have faith in a new covenant, the Messiah to come. Galatians 3, 24 and 25 says this, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We have a new covenant through Jesus, a relationship with him based off of his performance, not ours, based off grace through faith. This is very important to understand because it does not mean that this covenant is not bad. It just shows us that we actually are bad, that we can't come to these agreements, that we as bad and awesome and how holy God is and all he's done in the Israelites' life and in your life, you want to worship and you want to give all to God and you are not good enough. You're going to have to have faith to be saved. This is why Jesus came, and this is why it's so important to look at this old covenant, new covenant relationship to show us the contrast. Because when covenants are made, there are patterns, and there's a system to it. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, For the law was given through Moses. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The New Testament of the Bible explains that this gospel of Jesus is established a new covenant in which we enter into a relationship with God through the work of the cross, not the work of our own works. We, we sometimes say this and quote this when we take communion, and we'll take communion tonight at the end of the service. Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus said, This cup is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. He's establishing something new, something greater. Moses is a great prophet, but Jesus is a greater. The new covenant is established by Jesus and the work he did on the cross. Not our own efforts, not our own abilities, not by obeying the law or doing a good thing or being good enough. Our righteousness, our justification needs to come through faith, trusting in a Savior. But we will not be broken. We will not understand the gravity of our sin unless God shows us. So he's going to show us. And he's been showing us through the law we just aren't good enough. He's still good. He'll make salvation. He'll give you a covenant. But the covenant's not wrong. We are. Sin has entered us. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We need the gift and we need to receive this inheritance for all spiritual blessing, the Bible says, is found through Christ. Our relationship with God now is not based off of our works, but His work as we enter a new covenant through the faith um, and not works. So, does that all make sense? Can you explain it to your friends? No? We'll keep on digging in then. All right? In the words of the Gospel-Centered Life workbook that we're going through in community groups, um, it says this, the law drives us to the gospel and the gospel frees us to obey the law. Realizing all that God expects of us should drive us to despair to Christ. And once we are united with Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit causes us to delight in God's law and gives us power to obey it. There is a distinct a distinct distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So, I bring this up because as we look at Exodus 24, 
we actually see this old covenant confirmed. It actually points us to another greater covenant, and I'm going to try to show you how the new covenant of Jesus is greater than this covenant being confirmed and how it actually is beautiful good news for our souls tonight. So, this text shows us that God doesn't just want to save us, but he actually wants to enter into a relationship with his people. So he publicly has a ceremony to rejoice in that relationship, and he establishes a covenant with his people. Solid. Let's do some text work. Verses 1 and 2, an invitation. Then he, this is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel. Worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. God in this text, he starts off with chapter 24 with an invitation. God is going to confirm to make a covenant with his people. And I want us to notice that he initiates this covenant. He initiates the covenant. He invites the leaders to come up to the nation. Now, there are a few new characters that have not come up uh, that were introduced in this text. Um, Two guys, uh, Nadab, Nadab, I don't know how to pronounce his name, and neither do you. But Abayu, uh, I do know that by memory, these two leaders were actually Aaron's sons. Aaron's sons. We know this because when we study the Bible and put things together, they would have actually been the next high priest in the nation of Israel, but they actually later died under God's judgment because they, they, they committed a sin and had unauthorized sacrifices. The high priest, the tabernacle was all based off of a system. They actually abused it and sinned and gave a bad misreputation of God's heart. So he took them out. Leviticus chapter 10, you can read about it. Numbers chapter 3, both talk about that. So we see that Moses, Aaron, his sons, and the 70 leaders are invited to go up to the mountain to meet with the Lord. And we know that these leaders represent not only themselves and their families, but the whole nation. Now, back in Exodus chapter 18, we saw great godly advice from Jethro. Remember Moses' father-in-law? He said, you're going to burn yourself out. You need to get people to represent the nation. These are these people. These 70 elders are leaders, and the sons and Aaron and Moses, they represent, uh, they represent the people. So Moses appointed able men, I quote, from all people, men who fear God and who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. So by God inviting these leaders, he's actually inviting the entire nation, the representation of the nation to come up and have a presence or a, a relationship with him. He's really inviting the nation and the invitation to a covenant for the nation, all the people there. And so notice it's initiated by God because he says, Moses, come up to the Lord. God initiates relationship. This is his heart. Remember, we're not only studying to find out what this says, but we also want to know what does it mean? What does it teach us about God? How can we adore him and, and, and worship him more? This is showing us that God actually wants to have a relationship with people. This is amazing because we know through Scripture people are not that great. They're imperfect. They're sinners. They're enemies of God, but yet while we were enemies, what did Christ do? He died for us. He loves us. He pursues us. The Bible says in 1 John 4.19 that we love because He first loved us. We love because he for, we are responding to God and His heart. We see this God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament initiate and proactively love people and pursue them. 
The Israelites were slave. They were lost. And they would have been just remained there in agony if God would not have initiated and saved them. And the Bible teaches that we were dead, lost, children of wrath in our sin, Ephesians chapter 2, and would have remained in that state unless God proactively saved us and poured out His mercy and His grace and His work. Our salvation doesn't start with us even saying a prayer. It starts with God. It starts with Him initiating, working, coming down as Emmanuel, inviting us to meet with Him. This is why we need to be people of thanks coming in this worship services to praise God and all that He's done because He knows all about us and still loves us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says this, But we, as God's people, ought always to give thanks to God for you. We always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved to the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. Now, we are saved through faith, a response of God's wonderful initiation and invitation of grace. But let's remember that God is the one who invites, who initiates, who made a way. What a gentleman. He invites, he woos our hearts. We have a wonderful covenant that God cares about people so much that we can have fellowship with Him once again because sin sin separates us from the Lord, but He brings us back into relationship. This is why the gospel is called good news. It brings us to God, not only reconciling us to God, but also with one another because if God can forgive us and we can experience His love, it'll actually transform our heart and now we can be freely to love one another, give peace and forgive And he wants us as his people to invite others to this wonderful covenant, the covenant of grace, to have fellowship with him. He tells us to go and make disciples, to evangelize, to preach in the highways and the byways, to let people know this is good news. Because he not only died for us as his people, but he died for the entire world. Doesn't the Bible say, for God so loved the world? 1 John 2 2 says this, He is the propitiation for our sins, meaning He's full atonement. He's he's appeased God's wrath for all of our sins, for your sin, for my sin, for the world's sin, and not only ours as Christians, but also for the sins of the whole world. The invitation is to all. Whomsoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the heart of God. Old Testament, New Testament. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is what Jesus invites people to. A beautiful invitation to come up to him. So the invitation goes out to the people, and the people respond. The leaders go up the mountain. Next, we see this formal and public agreement take place in a covenant. Verses 3 through 8, a formal agreement. They're going to go up to the mountain. And verse 3 says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. Remember the stuff that he's, we've already studied these last couple of chapters. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and the twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he went uh, and sent 
young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw it against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, or the book of the law, and read it in the hearing of the people. And once again they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So they're agreeing to this law, the book of the covenant. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. And so in these verses, we see actually a formal agreement that there are words spoken by God and words spoken by the people. God is laying out the book of the covenant, the law, agreement, a formality, and actually speaking to them. These Ten Commandments, these ordinances that Moses received, he actually says they spoke out loud to the people. Remember, Moses was going up and down Mount Sinai. It wasn't just he was there for one point. He was going up and down, up and down, and receiving and going back and forth. And he told the people this time what God had said. And he not only told them, he wrote it down. Thank God for that because we're actually studying these words. So in verse 3 it says, Moses came and told the people and they agreed to the words of the Lord. But it also says Moses wrote down the words, or wrote the words down, meaning this, you can actually know God spoke because he wrote words down. The Bible gets criticized all the time. Well, how do you know if it's of man? The Holy Spirit has inspired the word of God. God can speak, but he also has written it down to, so you actually can test it. And you can actually see the historical context of these words. And there's a validity of the Bible. There is actually evidence and proof. And you can be like, wow, this is actually historic and, and profitable. And the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so Moses writes down these words. And then he rereads them again in verse 7. He rereads the people and the people are like, yep, absolutely. So much zeal, huh? We're not even just going to obey. We're going to obey real good. As if you know the story, it didn't, wasn't, wasn't long lived. But this is sort of like a marriage ceremony, right? When you publicly say your vows to the spouse or the party, but then you also sign a legal written agreement. Both are a part of the process. They were publicly and formally making agreement, and in this moment, agreeing to the covenant to obey God. So much so, it says that blood gets involved. Now, I get a little queasy when it comes to needles and blood. But I'm going to do my best talk about this, all right? Because it's in the text. It don't bother me that much. It's an aspect of the covenant, and it's an important aspect. The covenant was confirmed by blood. Did you notice that? There was blood being set on the altar on them. The covenant was confirmed. One commentator puts and explains the ceremony of covenants in this way. I don't have it written down on the slide. I just want you to hear it. Covenants were not only concluded with an oath, but after an ancient custom confirmed by slaughtering and cutting a victim into two halves between parties past to intimidate that if either of them broke the covenant, it would be far uh, fair with him as with the slain and divided host. Basically, it's a picture of this is serious business. If you disagree with this, then you're going to have to pay this price. As the animal was slain, you're going to have to be slain if you break this. This is like making sort of like a, a blood promise or having a blood brother with someone. You show how serious you are. So you, you ever do that before? Hopefully not, but you slice your hand and you shake on it, you know, and you're like, 
Oh, we're blood brothers. Focus on the text and don't pass out. Here we go. Uh, moreover, the covenant parties often partook in a common meal together to celebrate them. This is why the covenant of Abraham is so important. God actually put Abraham to sleep and walked in between the calf of uh, the animal that was slain and didn't have Abraham do it because my covenant, he said, is based off me, not off you, one of faith. Okay? This covenant, they're both awake. They're both agreeing to this. He's, God wants them to be under this contract so they could see the seriousness of it. Now, as soon as the people agree to this covenant with God, Moses builds an altar. This is a significant thing of worship. With 12 pillars, the text says, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He makes two offerings. There's one, there's a burnt offering and a peace offering. I told you, man, we're digging the text. We're getting, getting to it, man. A burnt offering. Here's how it would work. They would sacrifice a whole animal and it would be consumed by fire. There would be ash of fragrance and it would go up to heaven and God would be pleased by that. But a peace offering, the actually meat was grilled and eaten after it and the blood drained. This is where this blood comes from in verses 6 and 8. Notice how there was blood in the basin. It's because the peace offering, to have peace with God, there had to be a sacrifice. And you probably starting to have your mind click, thinking through the parallel of what is to come and the significance of this. One commentator said this, The blood sprinkled on the altar was God's blood, signifying that he was one party to the covenant. And the portion of blood Moses put in the bowls was for the sprinkling of the people as a sign that they were recipients of the benefit of the shed blood provided. Now, heavy book, but it's important, the book of Hebrews. I want to give you a few verses from that because it actually tells us the significance between the Old Testament and the New Testament and this covenant that how Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than the angels, greater sacrifice, and how this all points to Jesus. Because Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And since uh, the fall of man, blood has been the basis of man's relationship with God in terms of sin and forgiveness. There had to be a sacrifice made. Remember, even when Adam and Eve sinned and God covered them by what? An animal. There was, had to be death, for the wage of sin is death. So there's always death for the price of sin, always a sacrifice to have that peace, or what we are reading about, a peace offering, okay? Blood must be shed in order for us to actually have peace and a covenant made with God. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sin because Leviticus talks about how there is life uh, in the blood. This is also one of the reasons why blood was shed here before they go up to the presence of God. They had to have peace with God before they can go to the presence of God. They needed this peace offering to have fellowship with God. And so too with us. Without a sacrifice of blood, we can't actually have true fellowship with God. No matter how sincere or words promised may be. Didn't, didn't they promise? Oh, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. But what did Moses do immediately after that? Built an altar. Okay, you can have all the sincerity in the world, but there needs to be a debt to be paid. You sinned, you blew it. There's consequences for actions. So God gives them these offerings to be able to have his presence. And this is why Jesus ushered in a new covenant with what? His blood. You know, Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus, it was him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Matthew 5.18, or 5.8, Jesus taught and said, Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. When you have your sins forgiven and blood shed for you and that price paid, well, you have no life if it's yours. But if there's atonement, if there's this exchange, if, if someone can give their life for yours, your sins would be forgiven. You would have life to be able to meet with God. This is why the altar was built. This is why the altar of Calvary or the cross of Calvary is so significant for us. Now Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the um, ashes of a heifer, remember the burnt offering, the ashes, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offer Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus is a greater sacrifice and exchange His life or His blood for ours. He gives us spiritual life through His blood. And this is why the church talks about blood, sings about blood. I know, it's weird. But you have to understand the sacrifice. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. Everything. There was an old covenant. It's not good enough. But it points to something better. There was a sacrifice here. It didn't last. But how much more will the blood of Jesus last? Because there is significance. God is trying to point us to a better way, one of grace and through faith. Because unlike an animal sacrifice that continually needs to be made, Jesus' sacrifice is complete. It is finished for us, only to have it be made one time. Hebrews 7.27 says, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Remember, the high priest and Aaron and his sons are about to be established to do this work. And it's going to be a continual job. But Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron. For, um, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The New Testament, our new covenant, teaches, Ephesians 1.7, that in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. He did that work. It's not you have a new covenant based off of your own efforts, your own abilities, what church you go to, how much good you do. It's His blood. There is an exchange. There is atonement. Because Jesus said, no greater love is this that one laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus has called us friends. He sticks closer to the brother. He died in our place to atone for our sins. And this is how the new covenant or the new Testament was made for us. Now with the formal covenant, there are usually public signs of the covenant. And we see this in this text as they go up to the mountain and they're about to have a meal with God. Just as Laura and I had a covenant marriage agreement, we have a public sign. There are public signs to always having a covenant. And so too with us in the New Testament. We have a few public signs to our New Testament or our new covenant as well with Christ. Baptism, a public profession of what's actually happened in our heart to express something outwardly that's done, taking place. And communion, or also known as the Lord's Supper, a meal. John Corson, a commentator, he said this, While the sprinkling of the blood on the altar speaks of salvation, the sprinkling of the blood over the people speaks of sanctification, of being set apart. 
so too the blood that was shed for us on the altar of Calvary. But it's sprinkling on us as we apply it presently. This is why communion is oh so important. We're saved, born again, heaven bound. But how we need the blood sprinkled on us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be reminded that we can't get through a single day without the Lord living in us. And although communion involves remembering Jesus' death and blood shed for us, isn't it also known as a celebration? Because we remember what God will do, that he's coming back, we celebrate. And so what do we see the people after this covenant confirmed that leaders do? They celebrate with God. They have a meal. Look at verse 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel after peace is presence. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief, uh, the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. They celebrated. They ate and drank. They're sharing a meal. Now this verse tells us they saw God and ate a meal with him. One person said sharing a meal is a symbolic act of friendship. It, it shows that you have fellowship or communion with someone. They were having fellowship and communion with God. And this is what Jesus' blood does for us as well. It allows us to have fellowship and communion with God. Now, one thing that's sort of problematic and maybe a little hard to understand, or not so much, but the verse says that they saw God. Some people actually think, again, this is... a Christophany, Jesus himself. Why? Because in Exodus 32, verse 20, we haven't gotten there yet, but God actually asked, or Moses asked God to see his glory, and God's like, no, no one can see my glory, or they're going to die. You can't do it. No one can see God and live, he says. John, the New Testament writer, John 1.18, we read verse 17, verse 18 actually says that no one has seen God and only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus makes God known. Others, they say, well, this is actually more like a vision of God's throne, like Ezekiel chapter 1, or like Amos chapter 7, or you know that great, big, amazing uh, vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 6, where the train of his robe filled God's glory. And notice how the in- emphasis is on his feet, his foot. They can't even look up, they're looking down. And this sapphire in the throne of God gets pictures from Revelation as well about the throne of God. But I think it's just sort of a moot point. Because whether it's Jesus himself or a vision of God on the throne, both apply the point that they were celebrating with God in the covenant over a meal. This was bringing them into the presence of God, whether it be through a vision or through actually the person of Jesus. This is what covenant does. It brings fellowship. And this is what we celebrate. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you have your sins forgiven, you can have access to the Father and the Son and the triune God, the Holy Spirit, and dwells with you now. You're able to enjoy a relationship with God. Let's never forget how special our salvation is. It is true. We can't see God on our own ability, on our own righteousness. 
But doesn't Jesus give us his righteousness? Doesn't the Father look at us perfectly as if we are covered by Jesus' blood? We now have access to God. So much Hebrew says, now boldly go before the throne room of God. We can pray. There's only one mediator between God and man. That's Christ Jesus. We go to Jesus through the power of the Spirit and seeing a relationship through the Father. It's amazing that we have fellowship with God and we could talk to God and, and enjoy His presence. And He walks with us in the ups and the downs. Although the leaders would have this special moment in this text, it wouldn't last. The covenant they were under wouldn't last. Because this covenant said if you obey God, you would be blessed. But if you disobey God, you would be cursed. But they promised, they affirmed the covenant, but they failed miserably. I mean, just talk about beef in it, man. While Moses is going to be up in the mountain, they're going to get a golden calf and worship it. And one of their leaders, this great leader that sees the God, Aaron, he's actually going to help them worship a false idol. Because that's the power of our own strength and our own weakness. We just can't do it. That's why this covenant is so important because it's showing us we need to have Jesus. We need to have a better covenant. We can't go into this law and this continual try harder, do better stuff to get with God. It's so tiring. God wants you to know Him despite your flaws. For there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. There is a new covenant of Christ. And Jesus he is much better because it's based off of his work and his work is complete. To tell us that he screamed it from the cross, the covenant of grace. And he tells us even today as the church, as we gather to celebrate that, to remind ourselves of that and never go back to this old covenant. He is a greater, greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater covenant. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is better. And although we take communion by faith now as we gather, there also will be a day for you and I, brothers and sisters, where we see Jesus face to face. You know, heaven is often called having a great meal with God. Remember that invitation that Jesus gave. Go out to the highways and the byways, man. There's a great, beautiful banquet. There will be the feast of God. When the Lord comes and returns for his church, we will arise into heaven and be with the Lord face to face, worshiping him, and there will always be a meal and the presence of God. This is what the great new covenant is, and it's not just a temporary thing, this one moment in history like this chapter, it's for all eternity. When you place your faith in Jesus, you can have confidence to live as Christ and to die as gain. You will see God face to face. Now we see in a dim mirror, we have to have faith. And we get accredited righteousness. And so we've been declared righteous before God. We are being saved because God is sanctifying us and working us. But there will be a day of glorification where we will never struggle with sin and the flesh anymore because we will get resurrected bodies because Jesus not only died through his covenant, but he rose again. And when we take communion and have a meal with him as the church, we remember all these things. Our salvation and this is why we see in this last section Moses being called up to the mountain to be in the presence of God. Let's finish the chapter, verses 12 through 18. Being in God's presence. This is what it led to. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone. This is the first time it's referring to the stone. With the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua 
And Moses went up to the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses gets this instruction from God and he goes in God's presence for 40 days and 40 nights. And you know what? This instruction he's getting, he's already written down now the law, the instruction of the nation of Israel, that promise. Chapters 25 through 40 are all about the tabernacle of God, setting up the high priest, sanctuary, and this last section of the book. We will, of course, we'll get to it in the details of our study, but to close our time today, uh, I want you to notice just one thing that this covenant led to, God's presence. Moses went up to the mountain, met with God, and God would give him instructions to the tabernacle and have the presence amongst his people. This was important to God that God was with his people. Through this covenant, God was making a way for his people, or for his presence to dwell with his people. As we're going to study about the tabernacle and this being set up and they can meet with God and all these different cool things. Remember the heart of God's covenant was to be their God and them be his people. Covenant led to presence. Covenant led to presence. And this was a temporary thing in the tabernacle. It wasn't supposed to be forever. Now, the tabernacle would later go to the temple. The temple would then be established, be destroyed, established, destroyed again. The old covenant was not supposed to show us a, a, a permanent replacement, but to show us our great need for something greater and eternal. And by Jesus' new covenant, we now have God's presence. Not in a temple, not in a temporary tabernacle, but God's Spirit actually dwells with His people. When you receive Jesus, the covenant that He has made, the Bible says you're either with Him or against Him. You can't negotiate. You either repent and believe or you don't, or the wrath remains upon you. This is how the covenant works. And Jesus says when you believe in the Him, you will have eternal life, your sins will be forgiven, and you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God now dwells in you so you can enjoy the presence of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Second half of that verse says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's what a covenant is. That's what Jesus does. God's new covenant of grace leads to his presence, and we are now able to dwell with God, just like Moses goes up, but it's greater than 40 days and 40 nights. It's an eternal covenant. And it's not based off of your own efforts or my own efforts. It's based off of God and His work. So, I think that's probably good for right now, right? It was a heavy message. It's a lot of stuff. But it's significant. It's important. And this is why we walk through Scripture to talk about these things and to really dive deep into it. And so I'm excited. Next week we'll start chapter 25 into the tabernacle, the presence of God. But with our time closing today, let's partake in this meal of communion. The, the blood, 
a body beaten, broken for us. Jesus said, take this juice, this wine. It's a significant thing. It's to represent what's happened. Remember just how the wedding ring represents what took place. We as believers now take communion to, to remember what has taken place, that Jesus came according to Scriptures and died according to Scriptures. He rose according to the Scripture, and He will come back again according to the Scripture. Let us remember this great covenant. Let us celebrate our victory and the promise we have in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You so much that we can enter into this new covenant, Lord, not based off our own efforts. We see that the Israelites, they, they had sincere hearts. They even said, yes, I'll do it twice. But Lord, we are not saved by our works and our words. You tell us we are saved by your bloodshed, your work, and your word, your promise. For God, you love the world so much that you gave your only son that whoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the condition of our covenant. And we can confirm it because when we believe in our heart, confess with our mouths, we will be saved. We either receive it or we don't. And God, I just pray for those listening online or even here in the room that we would receive this new covenant, this covenant of grace, salvation today as we repent and turn to you. Would you help us to understand the significance of this fellowship? And Lord, even in our own efforts when we blow it, help us to understand our fellowship with you is not based off of us. As far as from the east is to the west, you have forgiven our sins. And so we rejoice, we celebrate, we look to your blood to cover us. As Peter says, Lord, sprinkled the blood to the saints. We want to be covered by your blood, covered by your sacrifice. And we need your covenant to lead us to you. So we enter in, we remember this, and we publicly do this, thanking you, God, for who you are. We bless and praise your name. Amen. Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Williams at Redemption Church in Delray Beach. Thank you so much for listening to that message. We pray it was an encouragement. It was a blessing to you as we love to pursue and to proclaim Jesus together. And so no matter where you're listening, whether it be YouTube or our podcast, you can go to more resources at redemptiondb.com and even partner with us in ministry to pursue and to proclaim Jesus. God bless you. And thank you so much for listening.